0: Greetings, investors. I'm Rudy von Abley, and this is Guild's Weekly Market Commentary for the week ending March 15, 2019. If you like what you hear today, please hit subscribe. And for more, please visit us over at www.guildinvestment.com. You can find us on all the usual social media channels. We love your questions. If you have questions or comments for us, please contact us by phone or email or leave us a comment below. This week we're talking first of all about the Trump administration and its drive for transparency in healthcare pricing. Healthcare is the second largest sector of the S&P 500 and healthcare stocks represent about 15% of the index. The ongoing and intensifying debate about healthcare costs is therefore an important matter for investors to monitor. It is likely that both Democratic and Republican solutions to rising costs will be highly disruptive to companies' revenues across the sector. In this piece today, we're describing a new proposal by the Trump administration, which, if it were put in place, would profoundly change the economics of healthcare delivery. So Medicare for All, which you have probably heard in the news, is no longer just a slogan of the Bernie Sanders presidential campaign, as it was in 2016 and is now entering the mainstream of democratic party discourse. The United States National Healthcare Act HR676 was actually introduced into the House of Representatives in 2003 when it had 25 co-sponsors. It has been reintroduced every year since then. As recently as 2015, it only had 49. Now it has 124 Bernie Sanders' corresponding Medicare for All bill in the Senate, S1804, was introduced in 2017 and now has 16 co-sponsors. Polls of younger voters show consistently growing support for the kind of state-run or state-guaranteed health care that is in place in many of the world's other developed nations. The institution of some form of single-payer health care in the United States is neither a foregone nor imminent conclusion, but It's clear that in the face of widespread dissatisfaction with the cost and availability of health care, the idea is rapidly gaining traction among sectors of the electorate. Of course, the problem is real. The U.S. pays much more, overall, for health care than its developed world peers and has, overall, worse health outcomes. The question is simply how to solve these problems. In one form or another, the Democratic Party would like to use the power of the state, And in one form or another, the Republican Party would like to harness the free market. As the Democratic Party seems, in fits and starts, to coalesce around some version of a single-payer system, the trajectory of the Republican policy has been less clear. Even after years in the political wilderness, Republicans were unprepared to offer an alternative to the Affordable Care Act when they found themselves in possession of the White House and Congress after the 2016 presidential election. Analysts can begin to interpret the industry and company-specific risks of a move towards single payer, but the risks posed by Republican proposals are less tractable because we haven't yet seen the emergence of a Republican consensus. Now, however, after Republicans' loss of the House, their trajectory is becoming clearer, and it could be summarized by the term transparency, which has been a rhetorical focus of the Trump administration from the beginning. A dramatic proposal was buried In the February release of a 700-page draft of new regulations to help improve patients' access to their electronic health records, the Department of Health and Human Services solicited comments on a rule which would require hospitals, doctors, and other health care providers to publicly disclose the prices they have negotiated with insurers. That would make it possible for the first time for healthcare consumers to shop for healthcare the same way they shop for other consumer goods, knowing the real prices charged by different vendors and comparing them. That would be a powerful expansion of a Trump administration policy that actually is already beginning to be in effect and that has won acclaim even from the often Trump skeptical New York Times. A policy came into effect in January mandating that hospitals make public their so-called master charge lists, the quote-unquote list prices that they charge for services. Some analysts noted that knowing these prices isn't very helpful since they have little to do with the prices that are actually paid by insurance companies thanks to the private negotiations and discounts that go on between insurers and hospitals behind closed doors. Still... The new rule was welcomed as a step forward for transparency, for helping make healthcare delivery a place where price was a functioning signal and the basic mechanism of capitalist competition for consumer dollars could work more effectively. After the new proposal, the Wall Street Journal noted quote, Industry officials say the administration faces many hurdles before implementing such price transparency. The move is likely to be met by fierce opposition, including possible legal challenges from hospitals, doctors groups, and insurers, since it could have a far-reaching impact. The journal goes on, insurers might demand the same hospital discounts won by competitors, while some hospital systems might push for payment rates that match their crosstown rivals. If doctors' negotiated rates become public, other doctors could lower their prices to try to lure away patients. And the journal notes, The American Hospital Association said it opposes the move, Quote, Disclosing negotiated rates between insurers and hospitals could undermine the choices available in the private market, Unquote, said Tom Nichols, an executive vice president of the trade group. While we support transparency, this approach misses the mark, end quote. Now, consumers in the Obamacare era have been shouldering an ever-increasing portion of health care costs due to rising deductibles and the increasing prevalence of high-deductible plans. So consumers are more motivated than ever before to shop discerningly for care wherever possible, particularly in the case of expensive procedures and high-deductibles. Until now, they haven't had the tools, but this new rule would provide them. Like the master charge lists, the raw material revealed by this information, if the rule is finalized, would not be very accessible to consumers. It would be large databases of difficult-to-interpret codes and prices, but these databases will certainly become the basis for consumer-facing apps that will enable easy comparison shopping, and that would profoundly change the economics of healthcare delivery. The period for comment for the new rule closes on May 3rd, and sometime after that, a final rule could be issued. What industries within the healthcare sector would be most deeply affected? Clearly, for profit hospitals and managed care companies would see attention and pressure on their pricing models. Maybe distracting public attention from pharmaceutical companies and pharmacy benefit managers, who so far have been the primary recipients of political heat surrounding healthcare costs. We note the immediate negative response quoted in the journal from the American Hospital Association—a clear sign of who sees their interests threatened by the rule. We can expect intense lobbying in the months ahead. Indeed. The economic model for these companies, as it has been focused on private negotiation and complex discount schemes, would be upended. Clinical stage biopharma companies focused on areas of high unmet needs and on highly innovative therapies might experience some relief as political heat shifts to different parts of the healthcare value chain. However, we note that the effects of this rule, if it were put in place, would be unpredictable. Second- and third-order effects of radical change are often unanticipated. Therefore, in the near term, the prospect of such a change reinforces our sense of caution around the entire healthcare sector, even while as consumer ourselves, we welcome a constructive response to the much-publicized woes of the U.S. healthcare system. This week, Europe has been in the news a little bit as well. Last week, European Central Bank President Mario Draghi announced a new measure to stimulate the Eurozone economy. Three months after ending the bank's bond-buying program, Draghi announced a new round of, quote, targeted longer-term refinancing operations, unquote, that is TLTROs. This program basically lends money to European banks, quote-unquote, charging them the ECB's minus 0.4% deposit rate, which means, of course, that the ECB is actually paying banks to take the loans. In order to be eligible, the banks must, in turn, then lend those funds into the real economy, to European corporations. It's a method to make sure the credit taps are still open, as Europe's economy slows, and parts of it, Germany and Italy in particular, teeter close to recession. This seems like a no-brainer for European banks who can make money on both ends of the deal. Of course, the question is whether the observed slowdown in lending is a supply issue or a demand issue. In other words, is the problem that there's no money to lend or that there's not enough demand for loans? On this point, the data lean in the latter direction. Europe has a lot of current worries. Brexit, a populist government in Italy, a slowdown in demand from China, and the Yellow Vest Uprising, which is challenging Emmanuel Macron, the great white hope of the European elite. The bigger picture is one we have harped on ad nauseam and our apologies for pointing it out again. The fractured nature of European politics have meant that European banks have never taken their proper medicine after the 2008 crisis. Bottom line is that the system requires reform that the nations of the Eurozone cannot agree to provide. Some political and economic events may conspire to create trading opportunities in Europe, but we do not view the continent as a longer-term investment destination. If the UK manages to genuinely disentangle itself from Europe, we'll become bullish on UK equities and on the British pound. Moving on to China again for a moment. China's rapid stock market advance in 2019 is leading some US investors to recall that market's 2015 boom and crash. As we have pointed out, the domestic Chinese stock market is driven primarily by the sentiment of local retail investors, although the gradual opening of this market to investors outside China will eventually begin to change that. The sentiment of local retail investors is driven by pronouncements from government officials about stocks, financial events, and political events which will stimulate economic growth. This time, it seems to us that there are more significant policy and macroeconomic processes at work supporting that sentiment while 2015 looked like a more purely speculative bubble. What are the factors we see? First, the economic backdrop is one of an economic deceleration that, as we've been suggesting since last year, will likely hit its low in the first half of 2019 and then reaccelerate in the latter half of the year. Second, The Chinese government is actively stimulating the economy in many ways, talking up the significance of the stock market for China's global standing, removing some regulatory burdens on significant Chinese companies, and telegraphing its desire to open more to foreign investors. Third, the rally is not being driven as much this time by local margin debt, and so will be less vulnerable to a sudden reversal if that evaporates. Fourth, The domestic market will be supported through year-end by the announced expansion of mainland Chinese equities in the indexes constructed by MSCI, which underlie many ETFs and global stock market benchmarks. This expansion will mean a lot of foreign buying of domestic Chinese stocks. And fifth, there's the prospect of a fresh impetus of enthusiasm in the event that a trade deal is concluded with the U.S., even if that deal is not thorough enough to satisfy political critics in the U.S we're bullish on China. It'll be volatile, but the thesis is still intact and we regard pullbacks in mainland Chinese shares as buying opportunities. So here's our summary of global markets for the week. Slowing growth in the U.S. and China and stagnant growth in Europe have led central bankers to to open the taps in Europe, as we noted before, have led to additional stimulus in China and, as we noted several weeks ago, to a wait-and-see attitude about U.S. interest rates, frequently reinforced in statements by Fed members and by the Fed chair. In India, central bankers are talking about lowering interest rates, and an election is coming soon that will determine if the pro-growth positive attitude, that is, we can become an economic power, will continue, or if it will be replaced by a slow-growing, foreigners-get-out-of-India attitude. All in all, these are clear indicators that central banks around the world are supportive of stock markets. In the U.S., We like some big tech companies among the fangs and other software providers that can grow and provide new technology and cost savings to large manufacturers and consumer products companies. We also like some development stage biotechs, which will attract buyers because of their science and entertainment and travel-related industries. Most of the healthcare sector will be under pressure from political attacks, and some industrials will recover after trade negotiations are settled. Among financials, we prefer electronic payments. Looking at Latin America, in Mexico, Andres Manuel López Obrador, or AMLO, is popular with the electorate, but the stock market is unsure of his approach and is acting timidly. In Brazil, votes are coming in July about cutting excess pension spending and freeing up the economy to grow, so the market there is tepid as investors wait to see what's going to happen. Europe is making a little progress, as we noted, as Draghi once again rises to help the stagnating economic situation. We're not enthused about Europe due to Brexit and the other factors that we noted. At some point, this may change, but we believe that Europe, even if it rises, will underperform the emerging markets. Japan is also making adjustments to allow itself to continue to move ahead. Support from the central bank, a willingness of Japanese people and business to bend tradition and allow more guest workers work longer beyond retirement age and to welcome more women into the workforce are all allowing Japan (coughs) to be an interesting investment destination. (coughs) Clearly, China is the place to be investing at this juncture. Even the decline in stocks on Thursday and Friday of last week, which occurred as government-related brokers aggressively criticized some very fast-rising stocks, was short-lived. Why was it short-lived? Because investors realized that what the government was trying to do was to keep the market from getting too euphoric, while still allowing it to rise. Clearly, economic growth is already slow and slowing further in China. For example, auto sales And retail sales are way down. Economic activity is currently no more than 4.5%, well below the stated and expected growth rate that the government would like to see. Consumers and the public are less than totally satisfied with this slowing growth after they've become used to much more rapid growth in the last few years. It's obvious that the government wants to improve public psychology, and a steady but not volatile growth in the value of Chinese stocks is a good way to do that other benefits and reasons for stock price appreciation we noted before. Other emerging countries that benefit from China's growth are interesting secondarily, countries such as Thailand and Vietnam, which are potential beneficiaries, but are somewhat vulnerable if a trade deal with China doesn't materialize within the next few weeks. Also interesting, and also vulnerable, are commodities that benefit from China demand, such as copper, which is used in many electronic products that China and their outsourcing workshop countries make. Finally, Emerging markets as a whole are somewhat interesting because of the possibility that China, a growing part of the EM universe, Brazil, India, and many other Asian countries are growing and will be growing faster as 2019 moves along. Even Russia, which generally is not a fast-growing country, and which depends on commodities like oil to determine its outlook, is benefiting from higher oil and metals prices. South Africa is not doing very well, but demand for minerals is helping somewhat. Eastern European emerging markets in general are moving ahead more rapidly than developed Europe, and parts of South America are taking up the slack which have been created by the implosion of Venezuela. Gold is in high demand from central banks and from those who do not like to see the rapid expansion of debt throughout the world. If cash flows can't support the payment of these massive debts, the demand for gold will eventually reach very exalted heights. We believe that if gold moves past 1360, it'll approach 1500 in the not too distant future. We like U.S. major growth in tech companies and Chinese A shares. We will again regain interest in Brazil after the vote on pension reform coming in the next few months. We like Japan for slow, steady growth, China for fast growth, and some Chinese workshop countries if a trade deal takes place. Copper as a way to play Chinese commodity demand and gold in recognition many countries are now stockpiling gold in their national banks, for example, Russia and China. That's it for us this week. Thanks very much for listening. We welcome your calls and questions, and you can send them to us over at www.guildinvestment.com. If you like what you heard and you'd like to hear more, please be sure to hit subscribe, and you can find us on all the usual social media suspects. Talk to you next week.